Greetings, brothers. It's a joy to teach you today, share with you from God's Word in Genesis chapters 37 and 38. We have a lot of material to cover, so I'm going to try to make comments along the way as we read it bit by bit and put together the story that unfolds in these chapters, but not just in these chapters. This is a story that, uh, that unfolds uh, over the rest of the book. This is, uh, according to the Hebrew ordering of the, of the book, the last chapter of the book, uh, because this is the Toledoth of Jacob. We've studied these Toledoths before, that is the, the generations of, and so this is the record of Jacob's sons. And, and, and while it is typically thought to be all about Joseph, we'll find a surprise here, introduced in chapter, chapters 37 and 38, a surprising focus on a very unlikely person who actually takes us to the Savior. And I think in so doing, in, in studying this chapter with that focus, you will find a very refreshing and amazingly powerful presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's begin with prayer and we'll dive in. Oh Lord, we pray that you would, by your spirit, open your word to us. Uh, open it to our minds, understanding, and then seal it to our hearts and enable us to keep the great command of the whole of Scripture, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. In his name we pray it. Amen. Chapters 37 and 38 begin with the scenes of, of Jacob and his sons. And they, they present many disqualifications for someone being used by the Lord. A number of years ago, I was invited to lunch by a, uh, one of my seminary students when I lived in St. Louis. <clears throat> and that, that, uh, that seminarian uh, took me to lunch and he said, uh, I, I, I just wanted to let you know that I'm, I'm withdrawing from the seminary and I am, I'm withdrawing from the internship at, at at your church. Well, I, 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 I dug into that a little more. I was a little bit suspicious of why he was making this sudden change. He was really passionate about coming to seminary, preparing for the ministry. He had saved his money for a long time as a businessman. But as I probed, I, I ultimately discovered that he was withdrawing because he said, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy to be a pastor. I'm unworthy to be a representative of your church's ministry because I'm an alcoholic. I've been an alcoholic for my entire adult life. Recently, I've been using smokeless tobacco and, and I've been diagnosed with mouth cancer. I'm I'm a horrible failure. 
I've, I've brought shame on myself. I've, I'm bringing shame on my family. And, and if I die of this cancer, I'm, I, I, I'm going to be a disappointment to everybody. I, I cannot be a minister. I'm unworthy of it. I will tell you, he was, he was miraculously healed of that cancer. But I, I also want to tell you what, what next steps we took. First, I, first I, I, I leaned into what he was saying and I said, uh, you know, I don't think your problem is that you are too humble, that you're so humble that you can't be a minister, that you've, that uh, it's declaring yourself to be unworthy of being a minister is actually a mark of pride and disobedience. Well, that took him aback a little bit. And I said, you know, it's what, it's what uh, Paul says in Romans chapter one, verse five, that, that, that to believe on the Lord Jesus is, is actually an act of obedience. Anything other than, than, than depending totally on Jesus Christ is an act of pride. It is to say in some way I deserve my redemption. In some way I contribute to it. In some way I make myself worthy of it. So you must be, you must be humble to the point to realize that you can't make yourself worthy. Just being free of alcohol or just being free of any addiction is, is not what makes you worthy of the grace of Christ and it doesn't make you a worthy proclaimer. Now, it's a problem that you have this addiction and we need to deal with that, but, but you have a false view of the gospel. Well, to make a long, wonderful story short because this man is a gospel minister today and he he came to our session and talked to us about his struggles and one of our elders who was also a recovering alcoholic took him under his wing and through various resources but especially a fresh application of the gospel to his life he he went on to finish his seminary finish our internship and become an ordained minister of the gospel one who can proclaim it with a lot more conviction than he would if he had had the delusion that somehow, if we are just worthy enough, if our if our family background is just right, another uh, past of which he was ashamed, his own family. If our family background is just right, if we are just right, if if we are somehow able to to commend our example to other people and and there to follow it in a positive way, then somehow we are worthy of grace. These two chapters put the sword to those lies. And we'll see in the study of these chapters that we must obey that command to believe on the Lord Jesus alone. He alone makes us right with God. He alone makes us worthy of living. He alone makes us ambassadors of that good news by convincing us of our need for it and convincing other people that, look, if he could save me, he can save you. We learn these three things from this passage, that we must believe the gospel even though we have, uh, we have an unworthy family we must believe that the gospel is for those who are unworthy figures. 
and we must believe the gospel as leaders that we are unworthy forefathers. Unworthy. We believe the gospel is for people who have unworthy families, who are unworthy figures, and who are unworthy forefathers. Look with me at verses 1 to 4 as, as we begin to get a, a feel for just how unworthy Joseph's family, Jacob's family is. Jacob, of course, is, is the third generation after Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And God had promised to bring the gospel, bring Jesus Christ through Abraham's line. And the whole book of Genesis, really the whole Bible, is about God fulfilling that promise in Genesis 3. That though the devil will try to wipe out your line, I will preserve it and bring through it the seed of the woman who is Christ. But here we see in this unworthy family that uh, God, has to, God has to preserve the line of redemption even when we try to destroy it. Jacob lived, the Bible says, verses, verse 1 of chapter 37, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with his sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them, of his brothers, to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. First thing we see about this unworthy family is that uh, Jacob was repeating the sin of his father Isaac. Isaac played favorites, remember? He really loved Esau more than Jacob. And now Jacob is showing the same favoritism that grew up hurting him. He is favoring Joseph, who is his, his second youngest. He plays favorites. He, there's some indication in verse 1 that, that, um, that uh, or, or early in, this, in, uh, in, in, in verse 2, that, that, uh, that Joseph is, is shepherding his brothers, that, that maybe Jacob put him over his brothers. And then he gives him this robe of many colors. It's not quite sure how to how to translate that. Is it bejeweled? Is it extra long? Whatever it is, it's it's something that he flaunted in front of his brothers that that uh, distinguished him as his father's favorite. And the result was in verse four that they they hated him. You know. 21 times in this chapter, the word brothers is used. And God is, God is, is making the point of, of, of this family. These, these are supposed to be brothers. These are, these are blood kin. These are those who are supposed to be uh, loyal to one another and loving to one another. But they hate their brother. So we see that there is favoritism and, and there is hatred. And then 
uh, as we go on in, in um, at the end of the chapter in verse in verse 25, you, you know how the how the story goes on. They get so mad at Joseph as he's flaunting his his coat around and so forth. We'll talk more about that in a moment. As they were sitting down to eat, they had thought first about killing him. And then uh, Reuben tried to get him thrown into a cistern and with the idea that he would come back and rescue him later. But finally, Judah comes up with the idea as they sat down to eat in verse 25. They saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother, conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. They all conspired in human trafficking. They sold their brother as a slave into Egypt, ultimately. And then the, the final thing you see about this family is it's a, it's a family that... that um, that practices cover-up, doesn't tell the truth, even to their father, to the patriarch of the, of the family. They, they tell him, uh, Father, look, verse 31, they took Joseph's robe and they, they slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood and they sent the robe of many colors and, and they brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. You're trying to make it look like he was killed by a, by an animal, and they live in that lie until Joseph rises to power in Egypt and reveals himself to his, to his father and his brothers. This is a broken family, to say the least. This is, this is an unworthy family, and some of you can identify. I met with a, a dear friend the other day, a woman in her who is a grandmother, she still weeps bitter tears because her mother plays favorites. No matter what I do, no matter how much care I extend to my mother, no matter how many sacrifices, she still loves my sister more than me. Favoritism. And, 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 and some of you know what it is to live in a hateful family. Some of you know what it is to hate within a family. You know what it is to to be the victim of cover-ups or to participate in that kind of lie. Can God possibly use an unworthy family? Can God's grace come through an unworthy family? Well, Joe's Jacob, Jacob, you know, was a, was a difficult man. He was a difficult man from the time of his birth. He was trying to, he was trying to steal the inheritance from Esau and, and, uh, and Jacob engaged in all kinds of deceit. And Jacob practiced this favoritism. And Jacob, to be used by God as a patriarch, to be the picture of, of grace that God needed him to be, Jacob had to be crushed. Jacob had to be crushed. This is... This, this relationship between a goat and blood and a cloak, this is reminiscent, isn't it, of his attempted deceit, of his, 
of his father Isaac. Jacob's pride, Jacob's conniving, Jacob's self-trust had to be crushed, had to be crushed. Can God bring grace through an unworthy family? Well, apparently he does, but let's go on. Let's ask another question. Can God, can God bring the gospel through unworthy figures, through unworthy individuals? Can God, can God bring can God bring the gospel to you through your family? But let's ask the question more pointedly. Can God bring the gospel through you, through me? Well, you say, well, I, Joseph seemed to be a pretty good guy. Oh, really? Let's look at verse 5. Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, <clears throat> my sheaf arose and stood upright. Look at verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it, into his, told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. Well, you know, eventually they will bow to him. But Joseph would have to go through a lot before that would occur. Before he was in the position to be used by the Lord to be an agent of grace. You see, uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph was, 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 uh, was not only a tattletale, we've already read about that, he ran off and told on his brothers somehow or another. But he was patronizing. He was patronizing to his brothers. I'm better than my, I'm better than you. Father has given me this, this fancy coat. He's even given me some degree of responsibility over you. And, and he's, he's so, he's so proud He's insufferable. He's insufferable to his father even. Even the favorite. He, he, he's, uh, Jacob is just shy of hating Joseph. The word is so strong. Shall we bow down to you? You arrogant, impudent son. One 
scholar says of this passage, God's future agent and mouthpiece, meaning Joseph, God's future agent and mouthpiece of Egypt could hardly make a worse impression. Hardly make a worse impression on his first appearance. He's spoiled. He's a brat. He's a He's a tailbearer, and he's a braggart. Joseph, if he's going to be used by God, if Joseph is going to be a, an agent of God's grace, well, he has to be stripped and humbled. Look at, look at verse 23. You know, these, these, um, these narratives are written artfully. So Moses chose carefully the words he used. And, and uh, so in verse 22, when Reuben says, shed no blood, throw him into his pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that we might rescue him. And that I, and uh, Reuben was going to restore him to his father. In verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. See, he's, he, he is, Joseph is standing up in this coat of favoritism of false approval, false comfort. This means more to him than God's approval. And, and the word that Moses uses is pashat. This is, it is stripped from him. This is, this is the, this is the image of skinning an animal for sacrifice. Joseph had to be stripped of everything he was trusting in besides the Redeemer who was to come, besides the Lord who had revealed himself to his, to his grandfather, and to his great-grandfather. He had to be stripped of everything else he was, he was finding worth in, everything else he was finding sufficiency in, whatever he was finding that, that justified him, he had to be stripped of it. To be used, to be a real herald of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we, must, we have to be crushed and realize that our goodness, our righteousness, our acceptance does not come from having a perfect family. We have to be stripped as individuals from anything that we are trusting in more than the righteousness of Christ. Someone else's approval, likes on social media, our record of not doing certain things or our record of doing certain things. We have to be stripped of it all. There's one other point I want you to see in this passage, and, and um, it's very disturbing. Uh, it begins in, in, in chapter 37 as we're introduced to Judah. And, and, it, and, it, and it shows us that, that God... God actually insists on using people who are obviously unworthy. 
Now, it doesn't mean that you go out and do something that is obviously bad in order to make yourself qualified. It means, rather, that, that in his providence, he will, if he's going to use you, he's, he's going to reveal who you really are. And it means that if you're going to, if you're really going to, to grasp the greatness of, of God's grace, if you're really going to be an effective communicator of the grace of the gospel to others, it will require you turning what is inside every one of us, turning it outside. And... And here's the way you become an effective witness. It is by your convincing other people that you really are the worst of all sinners. Now, everybody vies for that. Paul laid claim to it, but he laid claim to being the chief of sinners. But what he's saying is when you, when you compare and contrast, when you contrast yourself to the righteousness of God, Every one of us will see. When we do that honestly, we will declare. We won't look at ourselves and compare and contrast ourselves to other people. We will see ourselves only in relationship to the holiness of God, and we will say, I am the chief of sinners. We'll no longer look down and point the finger at somebody else or dismiss or cancel somebody else because they're somehow less worthy than we are. And God makes that point through Judah. Lots of people can conclude, including, I, I did for many years, I thought chapters 37 to 50 are about Joseph. But chapters 37 to 50 are not about Joseph. They're about Judah. Joseph is an image of Christ. He's a figure of Christ. He remains, once he is, once he is redeemed, once he is, once he is stripped of everything else he's trusting in and he gets to Egypt, it's a, it's a continuous picture of, of Joseph as a, as, a, as a substitutionary atonement, a, a, a mediator. But Judah is revealed as the, as the most unthinkable of sinners whom God redeems to make the progenitor, the forefather of Jesus himself. Now it begins, we begin to get that, imp that impression in, in, in chapter 37. It is, it is Judah's idea to, to, uh, to sell his brother into, into slavery. You know, Reuben, I mean, originally the brothers wanted to kill him, they see him with that that coat coming, and they say, let's kill him as soon as he gets here. And Reuben thinks, oh, we can't kill him. And, and so Reuben speaks up and, uh, and says, uh, he, he, he's not brave enough to, to say, you can't kill him. That's not right. Reuben is an exemplar of cowardice uh, in the whole story. But what he, he says, just throw him in the well. And then he's in the back of his mind thinking, I'll come and rescue him later. But Judah, seeing the Ishmaelites coming, coming, seeing the caravan coming, Judah is a malicious 
cruel person says no. Effectively, no. Killing him would be too good for him. He would be over like that. Let's sell him into slavery so that his torment might last a long, long, long time. Judah's malicious. And then Judah in chapter 38, and, and, and Bruce Waldke, the famous Old Testament scholar, calls Genesis 38 the most sordid chapter in the Old Testament. This is a, this is a disturbing chapter. And it's all about Judah. Judah, the beginning of chapter 38, he, he does uh, the worst thing a faithful Jew could do. And that is to marry a Canaanite. Because the Canaanites were not just, they were, they were religious people, but they worshiped gods who were enemies of the one true God. This was, Canaanite religion was, was bloodthirsty and, and cruel and dehumanizing. And, 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 so, and so even though Judah knows that the, that the Messiah is to come through his line, he purposely goes out and makes friends with someone named Hira. And through Hira, he meets a Canaanite woman named Shua and he becomes, and they, they get married. He marries the enemy of God, verses one through five. He, 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 uh, Judah saw the daughter, verse two, of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her, went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. He called his name Ur. Not only did, not only did is Judah malicious and, and marry an enemy, but he bears this son named first son named Ur, which is, which is. Uh, Evil in Hebrew spelled backwards. He 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 makes us he, he he names his firstborn son. Um, uh, uh, evil. And then his second son is is Onan. And somehow or another, um, Ur dies. Judah took a wife for Ur. Verse six his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Doesn't give us any more detail than that. It was so bad, God killed him. So Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. He put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's household. So in Israel, there was a, a law, the Leveret law. You can find it Deuteronomy 25, it would be revealed later. But the idea was that when, when, you, when, um, when your husband died and there was, you, before you had had children, there was no male uh, who could carry on the family name, then, then the next in line, the next in line to that brother who, who bore the same name was to, 
take you into his household, bear children by you, so that his, so that his brother's name could go on. Now, it sounds strange to us, but that was, that was the law at the time. So, so Judah uh, put Onan, his, his secondborn, together with Tamar, Ur's widow. And Onan had sexual relations with Tamar, uh, frequently, apparently. But he did not want to bear a child. It wouldn't cost him anything to have the child. The child would be hers. It would be his brother's heir. But, but, but Judah had apparently taught these boys how to be evil, how to serve themselves, how to, how to have malice aforethought, to do things intentionally to hurt other people. And so Odin said, I don't want to honor my father. I just want to use Tamar for my own pleasure. So I'm going to make sure that she doesn't conceive. So God killed Onan too. And then Judah said, you're not to marry. And then he, he, he said, I'll wait till my other boy grows up. But he didn't have any care for her. He just dismissed her. Judah was malicious. He married an enemy of God. He mismanaged his home. He taught his boys how to sin, how to live selfishly. And Judah was so, so intentionally evil. He developed a seared conscience. It's one that apparently no longer knew right from wrong, knew, no longer acknowledged right from wrong. And so we go into this horrific tale that begins in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. Then Judah was comforted. He went up to Timnah, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. You see what's happening is Judah's wife has died. He's hanging out with this bad guy, Hira, again. They decide they're going to go on a, on, on, a, on a business trip to sheep shearing, and sheep shearing was like Mardi Gras. A lot of drinking, a lot of carousing. And so Tamar came up with a plan. She took off her widow's clothes and she dressed like a prostitute. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face with the veil. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come in to you. He didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she rose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. It's a brilliant young lady here. She knew that she was never going to have an heir. Judah was going to deny that. So she resorts to her own version of evil, dresses as a prostitute, 
but she knows she's learned to think like an evil person. She, she's going to outwit Judah. And she says, uh, what kind of payment are you going to give me? I'll bring you a goat later. No, you've got to give me some, some a down payment here. And she effectively asks for his passport, his keys, his, his driver's license, his credit cards. These are, these are everything that prove the identity of Judah. Verse 20, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. He did not find her. That is, couldn't find this prostitute he had described. And where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim on the roadside? They said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this youngest young goat and you did not find her. But about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet ring, the cord, the staff. Judah identified them. Can anything get more evil than this? This descendant of Abraham given the promises of God, the firstborn, intentionally marries an enemy of God, teaches his sons, he, he trains them in the art of doing evil and malice to other people. He, 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 he then goes to a prostitute and then finds and then when, then when he finds that his daughter-in-law, by immorality, has conceived a child, he is willing to burn her, kill her. She outwitted him, proved his identity. And here is where the story begins to change. Miraculously, Judah begins to demonstrate a conscience. And he says in verse 26, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. A Hebrew sentence is much, is much stronger than what's translated here. He actually says, she is righteous, not And he gives a first act of repentance. He didn't know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah, 
Perez became the firstborn. Perez's name comes up later in Ruth chapter 4, verse 12, when the text says, like Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. It was a saying. It became a saying in Israel to describe mercy. And somebody wanted to say, you know, this is, this unworthy person was, was redeemed. This person who, who deserved nothing but the wrath of God was shown mercy. They would say, like Perez, when Tamar bore him to Judah. Perez's name will also appear in the genealogy of Jesus. And Judah's name will appear in the book of Revelation. Because Jesus is called there in chapter 5, verse 5 of Revelation, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah's name is on one of the gates in heaven. Judah, this despicable person. I would by all accounts say he's irredeemable, wouldn't you? And yet God takes him by his grace, strips him of his, of his, of any, anything to trust in, demonstrates how despicable his heart is by turning it outside, inside out for us to see. You know what? The gospel can do the same thing for you even as it has done for me. Samuel Rutherford said, Christ hath use for your corruptions. Augustine said, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than to suffer no evil to exist. God exposes the evil of our hearts. in order to drive us to Christ. And then he calls us to make that, that spiritual bankruptcy known to others in order to convince them the gospel can save anybody. Well, as I was preparing this, I thought about the, the many people who have taught me how to die well. I don't tend to worry a lot about people who are braggarts right now or people who claim to know everything and claim to be better and more righteous and because I've held enough hands of those dying, I realize eventually they will lose that confidence. And a person who finishes well the one is the one who dies trusting in Christ alone. And as you're dying, if you have, if you're in the process of dying, if there's, if there's time to think about dying, all of your life comes back to you and you, you think, I have nothing by which to face the Lord. I think of a, a woman who called me to her bedside and uh, they thought she was suicidal, but she was, she was in her 90s and she kept saying, I want to die, I want to die called me to her bedside. She said, George, I want to die because I'm so tired of me. I want to go to Jesus.
I'm so tired of me. Uh, brothers and sisters, I, I, um, and I know there are sisters listening, by the way. I know we're talking to amen, but sisters listen to this too. I remember one time going back to my home church to preach. And, uh, you know, in my early days as a Christian, I really thought I was something. And I really, I really flaunted it. And I, I really thought that I was, I didn't think I'd be totally saved by my own righteousness, but I thought I would make a healthy contribution to it. And people around me knew it. The Lord crushed me in college. He stripped me of my confidence in my self-righteousness. He exposed my evil to my heart, to myself, to my eyes. And when I preached on grace at my home church afterwards, a mother of a friend of mine, a friend whom I hurt with my self-righteousness, her mother came up to me and said, It's about time you got off your high horse. It's good to hear that you've come to understand you have to be saved by grace too. Hmm. That hurts your pride. But our pride must be hurt. It must be crushed. It must be killed. Because pride is what keeps you from trusting alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we're not trusting in Christ alone, we're not very convincing witnesses. But when you've been crushed, you've been stripped, when God has dropped a boulder on your life and made you, made it clear that you have nothing, nothing in your hands do you bring you must only cling to the cross of Christ. That's what Judah had to learn. And so marvelous is God's grace that Jesus would identify himself as the lion, not of Joseph, but of the tribe of Judah. Amen.